Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Perry Sorn and Danny Bassett about the new book, Curious Minds, The Power of Connection, an exhilarating, genre-bending exploration of curiosity's powerful capacity to connect ideas and people. Perry, Danny, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. It's great to be here. All right. So can you tell us what do you do? And we're going to start with Barry. Sure. I'm a professor of philosophy at American University here in D.C. Um, primarily, I study political philosophy and uh, feminist philosophy, but um over the past, what now, five or so years, I've had the pleasure of collaborating with Danny and other um, sort of neuroscientists, network scientists, psychologists, in thinking about curiosity and um, thinking about it from a variety of interdisciplinary perspectives. I think it's it's such a huge topic, um, and I've written a lot about it from my own kind of field of expertise, but it's so great to be able to work with people in other in other fields and coming at it from different angles because you, you I see something new every time. And what drew you to philosophy? Gosh, you know, that's an interesting question. I uh, I went to college thinking I would be a doctor. Our, our dad, we're related, um, we're twins, and our dad is a doctor. And I just thought that that's what I would do. Um, but I signed up for classes late and a lot of the med classes were full. And so I had to take some humanities gen eds and they kind of slotted me into a philosophy class. So first time I'd, I'd had a philosophy class and um, uh, I walked in and I just it just changed my world. It changed my world instantly. I was I was in love from the start. I haven't stopped since. Um, it, 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 yeah, it was love at first sight, really. And Danny? Yeah, uh, I'm a professor of bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania, and my background and training is uh, both in physics and in neuroscience. So I did my undergraduate degree and PhD in physics, um, and along the way, uh, started working through um, it's sort of an interdisciplinary space where we can use principles of physics to understand the brain and the mind. Um, and so that is the, the area that I'm currently working in. Um, and yeah, how, how we came to, I came to curiosity is that in my interest in neuroscience, I've increasingly become excited about how the mind inquires. Um, and so I can try to wrestle with that question from the perspective of neuroscience and psychology. Um, but, uh, talking with Perry has been really, uh, helpful in seeing that some of the questions that we have, uh, today are questions that have been around for um, you know, millennia, and that uh, the perspectives that philosophy can bring to uh, neuroscience are, are uh, enable us to ask richer questions about what the mind is doing when it is curious. So you studied physics and you do neuroscience. And how did you find this uh, switching from physics? Or are you still doing a bit of physics uh, sort of on the side while doing neuroscience? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm still doing um, what people would think of as traditional physics uh, as well. Um, so I study materials and properties of materials that allow them to bend and to change their shape. It turns out that um, that kind of physics is also very relevant for understanding the mind. So what is it about patterns in the mind and mental spaces that allows the mind to bend or change um, its ideas and to think in new ways? So it turns out that um, while people often think that physics is really very far away from neuroscience and psychology, it turns out that there are some really important um, interactions between the fields that allow us to think in new ways about the mind. And Barry, during your career journey, did you have mentors that were really supportive of you? You know, I have had some um, really wonderful people in in my life during my 
um, academic career. I think uh, the the longer I'm I'm in it, the the more I realize how important just the small things of spending a few extra minutes chatting with students or um, kind of inviting uh, folks to collaborate on new projects. Um, and and I think for me, you know, um, well for both of us, but I, I think for me. For certainly, there's a way in which I wasn't uh, expected to um, become an academic, and I I wasn't even expected to go to college. I was expected not to go to college, um, as is the case with any. And 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 so I think having professors say, "No, you do belong here, and you are good at this," and and having professors and and other mentors and and peers kind of dream for me and dream with me about what what is possible in this kind of intellectual space it's been really it's been really important and it's a debt um i try to pay pay forward and danny what was your experience with mentors yeah i think i would echo um a lot of what perry just described and maybe i'll i'll just to compliment it i'll pull out something that he said a little bit earlier which is um the conversations with students. I think that we are, I am definitely indebted to people who have mentored me along the way, but I think I'm also indebted to the people who have um, signed up to have me as a mentor. Um, I learn a lot from them. I learn a lot from their sort of capacious way of, of asking questions um, and the enthusiasm and excitement that they bring, the new eyes that they bring to the work that we do. So I think I'd also like to acknowledge um, the importance of, of them in, in the work that that we do and that we describe in the book too. Oh, love it. And then both of you as mentors, what would you say to our student listeners and even maybe early career researchers? I think one of the things I would jump to say with respect to curiosity is that there are, and we'll get to this, I'm sure, but there are so many ways in which um, you young folks are already practicing curiosity and are already sort of driving forward what it looks like and what it can do. Um, and I think having a sense of empowerment about that is uh, important and having a sense also an appreciation for the diversity of ways in which all of us bring curiosity to the table um, matters so that we don't we don't have to have particular ways of doing a field or a commitment too close to particular methodologies. I think some kind of, again, capacious, rich way of approaching how we ask our questions and what new ways we could ask them um, with that, that that matters and young folks are particularly good at bringing that to the table. And Danny? Yeah, I guess I would also um, pull out even uh, more how to not just appreciate that there are different kinds of curiosity that, that each of you are bringing to your fields, um, but also learning how to listen to the kind of curiosity that you have and learning how to value it inside of you. Um, so I think that I think that taking time to listen to what you are passionate about, to listen to what you are excited about, to listen to the questions you really want to ask is so important because often um, there are structures around us that suggest that there are certain questions that that we needn't ask or certain questions that are that are left interesting. And I think what has um, been very meaningful to me in my career is, is learning how to listen to what it is that I'm really passionate about. Um, and I find that that students sometimes uh, can use uh, the um, encouragement to, to hear what they already have inside. So your latest book is Curious Minds, The Power of Connection. And how did you come to writing it? We um, obviously, because we're twins and we've we've shared our entire lives with one another, um, we've been practicing curiosity together forever. Um, but we started theorizing curiosity together maybe about five-ish, maybe a little bit more years ago, um, especially when Danny, I was writing a dissertation on curiosity in the field of philosophy and Danny was studying the flexibility of brain networks and when Danny was describing when they were describing the the flexible relationship between different uh, parts of the brain and different functions of the brain I said you know I really think there's something here that we could that that carries curiosity right that that sort of flexibility that interest in kind of trying out different ways in which the brain itself can work which is part of what the brain's doing all the time um and and it was that sort of 
Danny's work on flexibility and dance, kind of the dance of the brain. Um, and then what I was thinking about with curiosity, we just, it just sort of exploded from there. But Danny, you might ha have an additional part of the story to add. Yeah, no, I completely agree that that's, that's definitely where it started. And then I think that, um, it also was certainly informed by early experiences that we had in um, our education. Uh, so in particular, we both were homeschooled. Um, we had a lot of freedom, intellectual freedom of, under, of uh, constructing the courses that we would take um, and the questions that we would ask in the context of those courses. And that provided us with um, really a, a way of engaging in a holistic and experiential way with learning. And, um, but at the same time, we also uh, grew up in a relatively conservative um, uh, uh, family where there wasn't a lot of freedom for people like us to go to college as Perry um, mentioned earlier. And so I think that it was this interesting um, experience of, of having a lot of um, cognitive freedom and less um, social or physical freedom that created a space where we wanted to think through how humans ask questions about what is possible for them as individuals, but then also what is possible for whole fields of inquiry, whether it's in the sciences or in the humanities. So while there was something very proximal that happened um, when we discussed you know, brain flexibility and the philosophy of curiosity, I also think that the, bo the book is a culmination of our experiences um, that, uh, that, that wrestle with these questions of, of how to ask questions. Um, so, so I think it's, it's how we came to it has both a short answer and a, a longer tail into, into the past. All right, so let's dive into the book. And can we start with a very basics? Can you describe what exactly is curiosity? Yeah, I mean, the book itself is trying to give a different answer to that question than we've mm -hmm. had in the past. So in the past, um, folks have typically described or defined curiosity as a desire to know something, to know X, Y, Z, right? Um, and one of the things that we argue, the very the crispest way we can put it, is that curiosity is not wanting to know something. It's wanting to make connections between things, whether that's experiences or ideas or sensations or people or places. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a capacity to connect. Danny, do you mm -hmm. want to fill that out at all? Yeah, absolutely. So yes, it is, it is a capacity to connect and that has um, really important uh, ramifications for how we think about how the mind works. Um, and so I think that, you know, when we think about curiosity as a way of connecting, we're thinking about how a human mind moves from one idea and then connects it up to a new idea. So instead of thinking about curiosity as a um, drive to uh, pull independent pieces of information into the mind and sort of stash them in a bucket maybe, or in a, a purse for coins, uh, curiosity is really something more about how the mind stitches together ideas and allows us to unpack and learn the relationships between those ideas and then communicate them with one another. And it's this actually, this distinction between the more acquisitional account of curiosity and a connectional account of curiosity has a very long history. Um, and this is something that Perry's actually uh, been br brought up. Uh, maybe you wanna talk a little bit about that history, Perry, because I think it's so important in, in staging what, what the new contribution is. Right. So. Um, one of the theories we propose is, in fact, that most conversations about curiosity have taken this acquisitional approach, that curiosity is a desire to acquire, to get, to grasp, to know, to own particular pieces of information. And there's a lot of, you know, there's thousands and thousands of years worth of um uh, literatures and scholarship talking about curiosity, and I I'm particularly well-versed in Western intellectual history, but um, over and over again, if we think about somebody like St. Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or Rene Descartes or John Locke, all of these folks describe curiosity as this desire to get information, to, get, to grasp, to acquire. But what's interesting when we pause and we think about that picture 
is that we see a kind of individualism um, and a kind of, in some cases, colonialism, right? A kind of um, need to need to get uh, something that is and to and to perhaps dominate a knowledge scape, a knowledge landscape. But there has to be another way to think curiosity. There has to be a more social way to think curiosity, not as an individual capacity to get particular pieces of information that the individual then goes on to use in particular ways to benefit their life, but rather as a social practice in which together we come to build what what Danny and I end up calling uh, knowledge networks, networks of knowledge that are filled with nodes of experiences, beliefs, um, facts, et cetera, um, that are connected via their, these edges or these links. Uh, and Danny, I don't know if you want to talk more about the, the edges there, but, but we've also talked, we talk about curiosity as this kind of edge work, this laying down of edges between the knowledge that all of us are, are sort of generating and sharing together. Um, to create some kind of broader map of what it is that humans um, think they know. Yeah, exactly. And and maybe you know, um, thinking through that that notion of of edge work um, that brings into mind how do we understand these patterns of. Um, relationships between ideas? How do we understand knowledge networks? And I think that um, there is a, a relatively new field of scholarly inquiry that's called network science. Um, and network science is a field that's traditionally been used to understand social networks, actually. So how people are connected with one another, whether it's, you know, people that you meet um, in at work or family and friends or people on um, Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or some other uh, social media um, uh, um, profile or, or platform. So those relationships, those social relationships form these very large scale networks and, and each of us is just one little piece of those of those large networks. Understanding how the networks form and how they change and how they impact our experiences has been a key focus of the field of network science. But increasingly over the last couple of years, network science has been used to understand the mind. So how are ideas connected or what makes us move from what we know to something completely new? So how do we discover something? Um, and then also questions like what happens when our minds wander? went spontaneously like in the middle of the afternoon as we as we walk from idea to idea how how do we walk through the connections between ideas when we are by ourselves how do we communicate them how do we share them with one another and maybe to make this this notion of, of a network of ideas a little bit more concrete i like to think of a, a thought experiment so so what if we began with a word and then said the very next word that came into our minds. And then we kept going until we had said something like 20 words. What would that look like? Or what connections would be evident? Um, so I have some keys here sitting on my desk. So I'm going to start with keys. Um, so let's think, you know, keys, car, plane, clouds, rain, rivers, mountains, glaciers, climate change, climate in business and educational institutions, maybe cultures of inclusion, diversity, equality, justice, maybe the Supreme Court, maybe Ruth Bader Ginsburg, maybe Virginia Woolf. So in you know less than 30 seconds, I've gotten from keys on my desk to Virginia Woolf. And that feels like a wildly vast conceptual space, but if I would look back at each of those steps and you asked me about any one of those steps, it would be clear that there's a very simple and rational relationship between the two ideas that I walked between. So what does that mean about the pattern of relationships between ideas that we hold in our minds? And what does that mean about how we can search for new ideas to add to that pattern? And that's what curiosity is, that searching for new ideas, that building out of the pattern or, or network of relationships between ideas. Hmm. You elaborated so elegantly of uh, what I and many of our listeners will resonate about curiosity. It's really interesting. So especially the thing that you mentioned that curiosity perhaps is not a means to reach the end. 
So what is curiosity used for? I think curiosity is something we use every day in some sense. Um, we're constantly asking, um, how will I get this done? Or where will I get uh, do this? Or how will I connect these ideas? How will I write this paper, right? What, what are the methods that I need to use? Um, how can I negotiate my relationships with other human beings, whether in my family or my workplace? Um, what will happen with respect to climate change or, or the Supreme Court? Um, what is happening in the political landscape? How can we best navigate that particular space? I mean, there's, I think there are, we're saturated in questions. We walk around with these questions just draping off of us. Um, so I think we use them every day in that sense. And then, but we also, I think, use them for you know, I'm a political philosopher, so a lot of times I think about political spaces and, and social change. And I think we we also use curiosity for these much bigger moments. Um, some of my work has focused on political activism and and at the ways in which political activism typically asks things like, what do we need to change? And how can we change it? How do we get there? And when we get there, what will it look like? What, you know, if we think about anything from the civil rights to um, contemporary uh, disability justice movements or environmental justice movements, it's consistently asking these, these really basic but really fundamental, powerful questions. What do we need? How do we get there? And what will it look like when we get there? What, 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 do, what then will we want to do or need to do? Um, so I think it, it does those big things. And obviously, <laughs> curiosity also functions in uh, Danny and I, our, our own, you know, academic lives in particular to sort of forefront um, innovation and discovery uh, in scholarship. But um, I sort of think the mundane and, and the political are uh, some of the most important ways in which curiosity gets put to use. Although I would also say it doesn't need to be put to use. And Danny, I know you've thought a lot about that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it's it's really important um, in in a lot of scholarly spaces, but I think just in life in general to understand that the questions that we ask need not have immediate utility. Um, so in the scientific spaces, there's an interesting history of a, a pressure for scientists to focus on questions that will have immediate utility in the betterment of the human experience. Um, but there's also been um, a lot of work to demonstrate that some of the you know, very important discoveries have happened when people were simply asking questions that were of interest to them with no immediate understanding of uh, an emerging utility for them. So I think that there's a, a, it's important to hold in the balance the, the value of questions that may change the world tomorrow and the value of questions that are simply questions and we don't know what they may lead to uh, in the future. Both of those are, are, are really important, I think. Does curiosity differ between different people and perhaps diff different populations? And can other species have curiosity as we understand it? Yeah, I, that last question, uh, you know, I think we've, um, we've thought a lot about and some folks are, are also thinking about is curiosity uniquely human and I'd like to push and, and suggest that it isn't um, and and in fact there's a there's some nice work um, currently in sort of plant philosophy to argue that there's a curiosity in plants not just in animals oh, wow um, and in particular obviously the human animal but um, but besides that I'll start with your first question uh, which is uh, are there different ways of practicing curiosity among different people and maybe people groups or cultures? Uh, one of the things that we do in this book is we offer um, three styles of what we call three styles of curiosity because we're really committed to expanding how people recognize curiosity. I think too often, especially in our um, academic spaces, people think curiosity looks a particular way. It looks like you get a lot of A's. It looks like you ask a lot of questions in class. It looks like you produce a lot of papers, whatever it is, right? Um, and, and that excludes so much, I think, of the richness, the rich ways in which curiosity functions in all of us. Um, 
in a, in certain and certainly outside of the academy. So we propose three different kinds of uh, curious styles, which we call the busybody, the hunter, and the dancer. And these are um, styles that I drew from kind of canvassing Western intellectual history. And it's important to note there that if I, if I were to canvas or someone else were to canvas a different intellectual history that isn't limited to a sort of a Euro-American um, geography, then there's very likely to be other sorts of styles that would arise. But in this case, and with that archive, uh, these three were really obvious. And the busybody is, it's an older term, uh, but it really means someone who just loves to be in everyone else's business and get to know what everybody else is doing. Mm -hmm. And that's a particular kind of curiosity and academics might immediately say, oh, well, that's, that's, not, that's not me. But um, I think the more the more interdisciplinary of us folks, uh, we like to know what everyone else is doing in other fields, in a sense. Uh, we really like to think about all the amazing research that's going on and the topics and the methods. And it, really, it's wild, right? Scholarship is a wild, wild world. And it's and it's wonderful to see that, that all, all the different ways in which people are working in it. Um, so that's the busybody. The hunter is far more focused. Um, Hunter really wants to answer a particular question or understand a particular problem and therefore tends to uh, narrow down and really take minute steps to build a particular understanding of something. Um, this is more reflective of, I think, people who... Uh, Again, are more more taken to be curious, you know, someone who wants to know a lot about a particular thing. I think those are the folks who most people say are the curious people. Um, and then, but then the third uh, style of curiosity we talk about is the dancer, and this person is the one who's really creative, who is constantly willing to say, "What if I put these two things together? These two questions, these two resources, these two methods, these two approaches, these two whatever aesthetics? If I put them together." then what happens, right? It's driven by this, what would happen if I did this? Uh, dramatic mashup. And these folks are just really imaginative. And that's a particular way in which curiosity gets practiced. Um, I, I know, I, you know, one of my students was a philosophy major as well as a dance major. And, and she consistently said, you know, I'm most curious, not necessarily in my philosophy class, classes, but on the dance floor um, when I get to uh, improvise. Um, so I really I think about that often when I think about the dancer style, the improvisational impetus there. But so we we came up with this style, these styles, just to say, hey, there's a there's at least a few, there's at least a few ways of being curious among us, and not all of us are any one of these things. Some of us are several of them. Um, and then the more the more Danny and I talk, the more we ended up getting to do with those styles. Uh, Danny, do you want to jump in and talk about some of our work on that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I think an interesting question that arose after Perry had sort of excavated these three different styles of curiosity in the Western intellectual tradition is, you know, are those styles of curiosity evidenced in people today? So if we were to do a laboratory experiment, the way a typical um, psychologist or neuroscientist would do a laboratory experiment, would we find that people are butterflies, um, our busybodies, hunters, and and dancers, um, and uh, to answer that question, actually, there was um, we worked with uh, David Leiden Staley, who is a professor at the Annenberg School of Communication at Penn, um, and he led a study of people who uh, browse Wikipedia. And he asked them to browse Wikipedia for 15 minutes per day for a total of 21 days. And while they were browsing, there was an app that was installed on their laptops that would pull down information about which Wikipedia pages they were viewing. Um, and uh, so that allowed us to see which, not just which page they were viewing, but also which steps they took. How did they move from one page to another page? Um, did people move between wildly different pages? So um, for example, a page on you know, tree health uh, and bacterial infections in tree bark to let's say the new Beyonce album. Um, or were people moving between really similar pages? So for example, all uh, pages about uh, individuals in the royal family. 
So there are these two very different kinds of ways of moving that people could have in Wikipedia, and they align really beautifully with the archetypes or styles that Perry was just describing. So busybodies would move between the really wildly different pages, whereas the hunters would move between similar pages. And what we found is this very just beautiful diversity of humans, where some people were much further, you know, towards the end of the busybody spectrum. Other people were, were you know, very intense hunters. Um, and then there were people who were in between, who sort of did a little bit of both. And so what we found from this study is that these ancient archetypes that Perry just described are alive and well today in the way that we as humans um, engage with online um, informational resources like Wikipedia. There are some open questions from that study that we are continuing to pursue together. Um, so in fact, we're working with the Wikimedia Foundation right now to probe uh, these same kinds of styles in real life browsing. So not just um, inside of the experimental setup that I just described and also expanding to include the dancer. Um, so the, the movement and the kind of leaps conceptually uh, of individuals as, the, as they move through Wikipedia. So we're excited about um, that expansion. And I think it, it just underscores the fact that humans do display a huge variety of, of, of ways of inquiry. And each of those ways is um, exciting and important and offers something different um, to the individual as they build the knowledge networks inside of their minds. I might just um, circle back right there just to to pick up again on on your question, Galena, about whether these uh, styles of curiosity might be unique to humans or might be shared with other beings, and we do have a well, perhaps one of our favorite. I actually don't know which of, which uh, <laughs> chapter is our favorite, but one of one of our favorites is the appendix. Yeah, yeah, is the, the appendix in which in which we talk about eighteen different uh, animals or uh, creatures, not all animals, some insects, etc. Um, and we talk about their styles of curiosity because one of the things that's really important for us is while we think this kind of triptych of styles, these three styles of curiosity, really helpful and really important to sort of flesh out, we are sure there are others. And we are sure there are other ways of thinking about the diversity of ways in which people practice and non-people practice um, curiosity. And and we think that the, the natural world is one of the best places to go to start seeing that variety in a more, um, in a way in which humans who are always thinking about other humans can't necessarily see. Um, yeah, and maybe if I can just circle back to the question of, of what this affords to humans and what kinds of what kinds of curiosity we display and how we would use these different archetypes. Um, I, I think I do want to also underscore the utility of curiosity for um, the social space, so how we engage with other humans. And I think if you think about your engagement with your friends, colleagues, coworkers, family, uh, mentees, mentors, etc., you'll, you'll very quickly sense that these different curiosity styles are ones that you might use just yourself, even within a single conversation with another person. So maybe you, you know, start as a busybody and ask kind of really distinct questions um, about how their day went, um, what they're reading, uh, do they wanna go get lunch? Um, and then maybe as you uh, become engrossed in a conversation, you ask questions of them that are more, more hunter-like in the sense that you're really interested in understanding their perspective on a particular issue. Um, and then maybe, you know, towards the end of the conversation, you might move into the dancer space and, and, and be curious about how they connect their experiences in, in that one dimension to something else in their life. Um, so I think, I mean, curiosity in the social sphere allows us to understand each other as, as humans. And, and in that desire to understand, we might evince each of these different types of curiosity, even within a single conversation. Hmm, and this is really strong argument as a curiosity, as a connection building and knowledge building, isn't it? Especially when you, you think about animals. Yes, absolutely. So what are your curiosity styles and how did you come to find out what they were? I think that we uh, we find ourselves 
cycling through all three of these different moments throughout the day and, and certainly in our research. Um, I know one of the things we've consistently thought about is, is that the, the beginning of any research project really needs more of a busybody um, interest in all the literature that there might exist on a topic and to sort of learn the lay of the land um, and also read widely sort of outside the problem to start to get inspiration for the innovation that you might be able to have about the problem. So you need to know you need to know the, the landscape of the space you want to talk about, but you also need to know other sort of landscapes of knowledge that that you might bring to it to, to change how it is that people think about this particular issue. Um, and so, so the busybody is sort of where, where one would need to start there. And then you really have to focus at some point. You have to zero in, you have to make some decisions, right? What is it that I want to say? What is it that I want to test? Um, what are my hypotheses? What are my methods? Uh, run through it, figure out some results, um, some conclusions or some arguments. And, and, and that takes a level of persistence and in a sense, loyalty to the question you began with. Even if that question uh, modulates a bit on the way, right? So, so you need to start with the busybody. You need to kind of move into the hunter, and then you you also need to have this dancer style of curiosity always kind of in the back of your mind, or maybe at the forefront of your eyes. I don't know, but but looking for and being open to moments in which you can jump out from ways everyone has thought about this thing before, um, scholarship that already exists, uh, frameworks of and worldviews that already exist, or methods that have been used for that issue already, right? You have to be able to jump out from there and pull in something that could be from, what do we, what do we say, just... Um, could be from outer space, right? Could be just from left field, could be from wherever. Um, because all of us, all of us have, whether it's people in the academy or people outside the academy, right? That all of us have a way in which we inherit, we inherit ways of thinking. There's, and we, you know, from our parents, from our teachers, from just the kind of culture around us, ways of navigating our questions. We inherit them from all around us all the time. And those ways help to simplify what we think and how we go about living together. And those those kind of consolidations of approaches are important for fields um, as well. But they always uh, limit what it is that we can think and do. Um, so they are, they are, there's sort of a necessary limitation when we inherit these these ways of thinking about things. Um, but, but but sometimes we have to say, I think maybe we could open this up again. We could revisit this question, whether or not um, we should think about it this way or approach the topic this way. Um, and that's true in in the in scholarship and also you know in interpersonal relationships. All of us have inherited ways of negotiating conflict or love or building of families. All of us have. Um, and sometimes that helps, right? That helps us to kind of figure out our way. And other times it really limits us. And we have to go back to the drawing board and say, maybe there's a different way of approaching another person about this or approaching a person I love when there's this kind of conflict. We have to be open. And that openness is, I think, part of the, the dancer. Yeah, it makes me think a little bit too, um, back to the animals, about the octopus, this expansive um, way of thinking about curiosity that Perry was just describing, I think, um, you know, underscores the fact that we want to be um, bringing to our experiences and bringing to the world um, more ways of knowing or more more ways of asking and so the octopus is is fantastic and fabulous because it has you know three hearts and nine different brains and something like two thousand suction cups mm -hmm. um and so when i think about the expansive uh ways in which we could be interacting with the world outside of what we've inherited or breaking through what we've inherited, I think the octopus is a really wonderful um, metaphor. So thinking about the, the three different ways of bringing a heart or three different kinds of hearts, three different emotional capacities to particular questions, or how about nine different brains? So nine different sort of um, 
uh, questioning structures or, or how about 2000 suction cups, 2000 ways of, of asking or feeling or sensing the world around us. Um, so I think the octopus is a really nice example of um, you know, the ways in which we can be as we question our world. So there is a famous saying, did curiosity kill the cat? So is curiosity always a positive thing or can there be instances where we have to taper it down? Yes, definitely. Um, it's, it's important to be ethically careful about curiosity, right? I mean, one of the things that we've been pushing is that, that we should think about curiosity on a connectional model, on a network model or a relational model. And when you think about curiosity in relationships, um, it's very clear that there are limitations to how one asks particular questions or what one asks. Uh, there's, there's certain forms of uh, kind of ableist assumptions that can inform our questions that we really need to interrogate or um, kind of colonial practices of objectification of, of difference. That kind of curiosity is not something that has been helpful for, um, but ha has been incredibly violent in um, in our world, right? So there are certainly ways of being curious that um, that are, are damaging and, and we need to be um, aware of that. Uh, but one of the things I would also say um, is that the, you know, the curiosity killed the cat is something that I go round and round about because um, I certainly one can get into trouble with curiosity and, and you hope it's good trouble. Um, but there's a, there's a wonderful poem by Alistair Reed who, who revisits this very famous saying and um, argues through the poem that the cat was, um, the cat was actually curious about dying, was curious about what death is, insofar as it's another form of life. At least that's how Alistair Reed puts it. Um, and I wonder, I wonder, I think about that. I wonder about even the ways in which we've, uh, when we say curiosity killed the cat, it's, it's this sort of horrible thing that one would sort of take a risk and and or invite death um but it's it seems to me that that stems from a desire not to not to think about dying mm -hmm. uh but maybe something something fundamental about curiosity might invite us to into a more open space with respect to all of our own deaths which will occur at some point and it could it could reconcile us better if we if we thought about curiosity not simply as something that helps us live but also as something that might help us die when it comes to be that time um in which case i suppose alistair reed would say our cat might be a, a, a good companion in that moment oh i absolutely love this uh perspective <laughs> Yeah, me too. It stuck with me, but that, that poem, I just can't get it out of my head. So then thinking about the positive aspects of curiosity, how can we sort of help foster it in our community, in our society, and thinking about different levels? So going from individual then to parents who are thinking about their children and, and carers as well. And then on a bigger level, on the, on the organizational level of educational systems, perhaps. Yeah, Danny, do you want to take a first shot at this? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So maybe thinking about the individual, um, I think that one perspective that feels important in the context of, of the book um, and the work that we are reviewing there is that um, for, for a single individual, curiosity doesn't have to be something that you say, oh, I wish I was more curious. I need to work on this, like in this moment. Um, it's, you know, something very proximal and, and just another thing I need to try to do. Um, I think there's a, a freedom that comes from recognizing that curiosity is sort of a way of life that builds for us these long-standing knowledge networks in our minds that we carry with around with us every day. Um, and so that, that temporal expansion of curiosity, I think, um, minimizes or can help to minimize anxiety about like, am I doing this well enough? Am I doing it um, the way in which I need to be doing it? And, and sort of instead says, I'm naturally curious and that curiosity has led my mind to where it is today. And I bring with me into the 
the next moment, this long history of the questions that I've asked. And that provides me with a perspective that can enable me to see, um, see the future, to predict the future, to ask new questions about the future. So um, one of the things that we do in the book is actually to dig a little bit more deeply into a single individual's mind and a single individual's brain to ask the question of what curiosity does in the brain and how these connections between ideas are laid down. And maybe returning to an earlier part of our conversation, it's a, it's a lot like the Wikipedia study that I described for you. So in the Wikipedia study, we probed how humans engage with, with maps of knowledge that are you know, mapped out in the way an encyclopedia is mapped out. Um, so what do I mean by a map here? Let's, let's take a moment. Um, so in Wikipedia, it is a map because there are uh, specific locations, which would be web pages. And then there are roadways between locations. And those are the hyperlinks between different um, pages. So then what happens when we browse, we are using the Wikipedia map, um, but we're also creating maps in our own minds. So the question is, you know, how is the map created in our own minds? Does it also have locations? Well, yes, those locations are ideas. Does our mind map have roadways? Well, yes, those roadways are our understanding of the relationships between two ideas. And what are those relationships? Well, maybe they are, you know, similar features, maybe they're analogies or metaphors. Maybe we understand that two ideas are related because one causes another or one is a consequence of another. But there could be any other number of relationships relationships that we're sort of mapping out in our minds that create uh, this map. So, um, then the question comes, you know, from the mind mapping to where is that in the brain? What happens in the mind when we build the map? Does the map exist in the mind? How does the brain allocate specific locations to a given set of ideas? Or how does the brain lay down roadways or bridges um, or railways? And there are some exciting advances in neuroscience and psychology that are beginning to answer those questions. Um, and this can, uh, this ranges from how do we decode uh, where particular words or concepts are present um, in the brain, or, and can we decode whole cognitive maps of how we link up one idea to another. So it turns out that there's this piece of the brain that's called the hippocampus um, that maps out the physical spaces around us. So it has a, a physical map. Um, there's a lot of work maybe you've come across of sort of Lundy London taxi drivers and their um, hippocampus and how the hippocampus is enabling them to map out um, the London roadways. But what recent work has shown is that actually the idea space, the mental space, the cognitive space is also being mapped in the hippocampus in really intricate ways. And so there's this fascinating interplay between um, the piece of the brain that allows us to navigate physical spaces is the same piece of the brain that allows us uh, to navigate conceptual spaces. And all of that is, is to say that there is a neural substrate. There's a, there's, there's a way in which your brain makes these maps and has been making these maps for your whole lifetime. Um, and so what you're bringing with you into tomorrow is a history of the questions that you've asked and the things that you've found that allow you to ask even more um, questions to sort of climb into new spaces. So I think for, for an individual human, understanding and unpacking what it is that's happening in their own mind and in their own brain is really helpful because it um, expands the possibilities for the future. You realize the resources that you're bringing with you um, into tomorrow. Maybe then over to you, Perry, for more of the um, social component. Yeah, one of the, I mean, this is such an important question, right? What are the ways to foster a, a more positive curiosity in all of us and in all of our roles um, with other humans and, and with the world around us? I think one, I'll just focus, we, we talk a lot about, <laughs> we talk a lot about this question in the book, but I'll focus on one uh, um, piece that just resonates with some of what Danny was sharing, and that is um, education 
and specifically education for um, neuroatypical learners or people with uh, learning differences or psychiatric disabilities um, or, or something of that sort, it's important, it's really important to recognize that the ways in which each of us builds our knowledge networks that way, the ways in which our brains connect information and hold those connections or don't hold those connections really matters for educational settings. It matters that we as educators and as facilitators um, in educational spaces, uh, it matters that we see, that we understand the breadth of differences in how brains work and how information gets connected or disconnected in order for us to support learning in a rich, uh, diverse, and uh, e equitable environment. So I think you know a lot of folks talk about uh, making more equitable classrooms or um, meeting more students where they are. And this approach to curiosity, this sort of relational social network approach to curiosity uh, allows us to get specific about that. How does, what does that actually look like if um, someone learns far better sort of linearly, someone learns more uh, modularly, someone tends to hold a lot of disconnections in their brain and feel fine about it. Others feel very anxious if their information is uh, super disconnected. Right? There's there's a there's a way in which all of those questions are really germane to a classroom, and yet we're not really talking about them. We're working through them, uh, but the network approach really helps, I think, and and it fuels what Danny and I are both committed to, which is more of a um, social uh, a change, a transformation in in educational settings for social justice. Yeah, the discussion really built beautifully to demonstrating and illustrating on how different kinds of curiosities and this map buildings, building in our brain differs and how important it is for us to foster it. So now if you reflect a little bit more on the bigger picture, so why is it important for our society as a whole to do these things? And what do you want to see in the future? Where should we find ourselves? Gosh, I mean, the first thing that jumps to mind for me is we we really need to think about curiosity more capaciously. It just it just does work in so many more ways than we realize, and and grappling with that and and getting kind of intimate with that reality is is for me first thing on the table. Danny, yeah, and I think I would also just add the being able to to see, appreciate, and value the diverse ways in which people are curious, I think is important because um, by if, if we have too narrow of a view of curiosity, um, then we will not see the potential in the people around us and, and encourage that potential, whether it's in children, um, in education, whether it's in sort of coworkers, whether it's in employees um, or, or colleagues. I think that being able to see one another and, and really see the ways in which they can question um, differently maybe from how I will question is so critical for pushing forward in, in you know, scientific discovery, for expanding um, the uh, societal benefit and, and kind of the human experience at large. And if you think about if you think about where we are as a species right now and the incredibly important questions that are pressing on us and on the next generation, we need curiosity, right? And we need that breadth of curiosity now, now in a sense, more than ever. Um, so that's I think that's the invitation of the book is, is to sit with to sit with that challenge. And what discoveries in your journey to writing your book, Curious Minds, surprised you the most? I would say, you know, uh, as we were researching the, the animals, the creatures that are curious and the ways in which they are curious, I came across this 7th century iconographer, Cesare Ripa, um, in Italy, and he had a depiction of curiosity that was this woman with um, her hair sort of going everywhere um she has wings like angel wings and then she's wearing a robe that is covered with two and only two things 
ears they look like human ears to me and <laughs> frogs oh boy and i know and i just thought and the, these ears and these frogs are at the actual thing right somehow on the on the on the robe um it's it's very strange and i don't understand why this is curiosity uh for Ripa. but um but what was so weird fascinating and also what an invitation sort of to think about okay what how do i share curiosity with frogs first of all um but also what would it mean to think about curiosity and listening and a kind of um i mean a lot of our conversation today has focused a little bit more on the sorts of questions you or i might want to ask or the people that we work with might want to ask but sometimes we need to listen to other folks and their questions and their pursuits and um, what would it mean to have a really rich centralization of the practice of listening in our practice of curiosity? Danny? Yeah, I think that one of the most enjoyable experiences around this project has actually been in um, working with students around these topics. So I've um, been teaching classes on this topic for several years now and um, hearing how students can learn to see the scientific endeavor in a completely new way um, and, and realize and understand in themselves that the questions that they wanted to ask were, they felt were not the ones that were valued perhaps or, or sort of more traditional or more commonplace. And so they, they, they tended not to ask them. Um, but in the context of this more expansive view of curiosity, they, you know, they, many of them said, now when I go to um, work on my projects or, or write this paper or do this research, um, I ask myself, you know, what are the questions that I, that I could even ask? What's, what are the possibilities? And that, that openness and expansiveness, I think being able to see that in the young students is just, it was definitely my favorite part. And is there some kind of really wild or outrageous thing that you're really curious about or, or a question that you really want to find answer to? I'm not a particularly wild or outrageous person, but I would say that um, one of the perhaps more unexpected curiosities that I carry is a curiosity about mushrooms, um, just as as just fungal fungal beings um, and all of the amazing things they do for our planet and the weird, weird ways in which they look and grow and propagate. You know, I just, I don't know. I'm super into them. Um, I like to post a lot of photos of them on Twitter. And um, so there's probably more of that than there is the rest of my research up there. Uh, I, I know, right? Yeah, those uh, intelligent <laughs> slimes. <laughs> yes. They're pretty great. I think alongside Perry's interest in mushrooms, I have a fascination with insects of all kinds. Um, it's a little bit less um, wonderful to share with others because some people are really, you know, dislike insects um, and think that they're gross. So it, it's it's not something that um, that that everyone can value. Uh, but I think that understanding the complexity, the of biodiversity, is just is is fascinating to me. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. So what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? We're, we've, we've caught the bug, whatever the bug is, of, of writing with one another. Um, we've had such, yeah, yeah. We've had just such a blast writing this book. Um, and so we, we definitely have plans for, I think really we have plans for five more, but let's just, you know, let's, let's just start with one. Danny, do you want to describe a little bit? Yeah, um, so I think we're really interested in the ways in which the mind moves. Um, so in this first book, we really wanted to ask the question about what curiosity is and, and how it's connected and how we can understand that from a philosophy perspective and from a neuroscience and physics perspective. But I think increasingly we're realizing that, and this is through the animals, actually, through the bestiary that, that we have at the end of the book, we're realizing that the movements that beasts show actually allow us to think really differently about the ways that the mind can move in conceptual space. Um, the mind, you know, is, it doesn't have our body. It doesn't have, you know, two arms and two legs. Maybe it has wings to fly, or maybe it has um, the little legs of an inchworm, or maybe it has um, some other feature uh, that allows it to, to move in conceptual spaces in ways that we might not 
realize or take advantage of or cultivate in ourselves or in others. Um, so I think that uh, one of the things we're really excited to think more about is movement, which um, has nice connections to uh, Perry's background in, in uh, political philosophy uh, and social movements, um, but also capitalizes on um, my background in physics and understanding um, uh, mechanics or, or movement in physical spaces. Oh, that sounds super exciting. I hope you come and talk to us again once uh, your books are finished. We'd love to. We'd love to. And about your current book, The Curious Minds, what's the best way for our listeners to find more information about it? Feel free to check out MIT Press um, and any other places where you buy your books. Well, thank you to both of you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Galina. Thanks for having us. Thanks.